Well, I got to tell you, I love that we sang that song just before we come uh, to the word of the Lord. Um, Because as I think about it, I think that's very much the way that Paul has constructed this letter that we've been studying, which is this letter of 1 Corinthians. In other words, Paul has a difficult message for the church in this letter. In fact, he's got several difficult messages, and we'll hear one today. But where does he start? Do you remember? He starts by coming to these people and going, hey, incidentally, you're redeemed. It's where he begins. It's like he rejoices with the Lord over the faith of these people. And and, I mean, if anybody could testify to the faith of these people, it's him. I mean, God blessed his preaching in this city to bring these people that he's now writing difficult things to, to faith in Christ. And he then watched as the Spirit of the Lord objectively, meaning Paul could see it, Paul could hear it, poured out these supernatural gifts on these people. These people are undeniably authentic Christian people. However, here's the problem, and we've seen this too. They're not living like that. And that is, in fact, an issue. Why is that an issue? Because one of the fundamental teachings of Paul and one of the fundamental teachings of the Bible is that real faith shows up in real ways. Where? How? In our real lives. It changes who we are, which changes what we do. And when it doesn't, okay, that's an issue. So listen to what Paul says, for example, to this same group of people, but in 2 Corinthians, instead of 1, chapter 5, verse 17, he comes to them and he's explaining this principle that I just gave you. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning if anyone has authentic faith in Jesus Christ, you're really a Christian, then that person is a new creation. You've been wholly renewed. You're a brand new creation, he says. And then he says what? The old, meaning the old way of thinking, the old way of living, the old value system, the old way of looking at life and and the world and, and possessions and people and everything, ourselves, has passed away. It's died. It's dead. And then he says, behold, it's a word of sight. He's saying, look, because I want to show you something. The new has come. And the new you lives differently than the old you. Real faith shows up in real ways in our real lives. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 2, beginning in verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says with his mouth is the point that he has faith, but does not have works to back up that claim to faith? Meaning, he says I'm a new person, but he just keeps living like the old one. No difference. Okay. Well, can that kind of faith save him? Is that authentic faith? Is that saving faith? There's the question, and James is going to answer the question very clearly, but he's going to do it by way of analogy. Listen, he says, for if a brother or sister, that is to say, if a fellow believer in Christ, and what is to mark us as a community? Self-sacrificing love for one another. So he says, for if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, this brother or sister is naked, if you will, and lacking in daily food, this brother or sister is starving, if you will, and one of you, what, says with your mouth, so there's the analogy to that person, go in peace and be warmed and filled, and then that's it, without doing anything to help this person, without giving them the things, he says, needed for the body, what good is that? And that is a rhetorical question. In other words, he's not coming to us and saying, hey, do you think that's any good? Was that helpful? He's going, come on, we all know that's not helpful. Be better to not have said anything at all. And then he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works to back it up, if you claim to be a new person, but there is nothing new like the old guy, man, it's just nothing's changed. 
Okay, if it does not have works to back it up, it's not sick, it's not weak. It's dead. Real faith shows up in real ways in our real lives. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man, that's his favorite designation for himself, so he's speaking about himself. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So where are we? We're on the last day. Christ returns, and it's the day of judgment. He will sit on His glorious throne. Okay, Lord, and then what happens? Then before Him will be gathered all of the nations, all of the peoples is the idea of the earth. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats He will place on His left. And then the King, for that's who He is, will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, because you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Me, Jesus Christ alone. No, that's not what He says. That's true, however. But what does He cite? He cites the evidence of that. Hey, you were dead... And you've been made alive. The old you died, the new you has come with a new life, a new spirit, a new wisdom, a new set of passions. One that looks less and less and less like the old and more and more and more like the new. He cites the evidence. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and they're incredulous. They're like, what in the world? When did this happen? Because you would think you'd remember it. And they say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now we did that for each other, Lord, granted. But when did we do that for you? And the answer of the Lord is really profound and it's incredibly personal. It says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And what do you learn from that? You learn from that that if you're one of the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, man, when you're hungry, He's hungry. When you're thirsty, He's thirsty. When you're you know, poorly clothed, He's poorly clothed. When you have nowhere to stay, He has nowhere to stay. When you suffer, He's suffering together with you. Such is the identity of Jesus with His people that He can say, listen, when you did this for one of them, you did this for me. Paul knew that. He taught it better than anyone. Where was Paul saved? He was Saul before he was Paul, and he's heading to Damascus. And he has this whole itinerary of activities, and all of them are round up and persecute Christians. It's like he's got a whole book full of pictures of people that he's going to go put in jail and consent to the deaths of, because that's who he was before Christ literally met with him on the Damascus road and revealed himself in this blinding light. And what does Jesus say to Paul? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul's like, look, you know, I'm flipping through the pictures here, Lord, and none of them look quite like you. I mean, there's no blinding light guy in my portfolio here. I've persecuted a lot of people. You're not one of them. No, Jesus says, when you persecute them, you persecute me. 
So the righteous will say, well, Lord, when, when did we do these things for you? And, and Jesus will say, listen, when, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did that to me. But then he will say to those on his left, apart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For you people were not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and, and well, me, Jesus Christ alone. Okay, he doesn't say that, but he does. Because here's the deal. The old you dies. The new you is authentically new, a new creation. And in small and in large ways, you begin to do new things. So here again, he cites the evidence, or well, in their case, the lack of evidence. He says, guys, I I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they too will answer with great incredulity saying, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? We ignored, you know, the needs of each other and everybody else, but not you. And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, You did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What is the Bible saying? It's saying, listen, real faith shows up in real ways in our real lives. And and that when it doesn't, that's a problem. And that is the problem for these people in Corinth who are authentically Christian people, but are not living like authentically Christian people. And to the degree that that's also true for us, okay, it's a problem for us. It's a letter written to us too. And so here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you're redeemed. You need to live like it. You're not living like it. Let me show you how. And he gathers up issue after issue after issue after issue that you and I, as followers of Christ, really ought to live lives that look not just a little bit different, but a whole lot different than everyone else in the world who is not a believer in Christ. And he's going, all right, how are you doing on this? Okay, all right, how are you doing on this? Okay, how are you doing on this? You see, he's teaching us how to live for Jesus, even as he teaches them. And the first thing that he's coming to us with is this idea of how we deal with conflict between believers in Christ, not between believers and unbelievers, but amongst ourselves. Within the family of God, how do we handle our issues? And he begins this discussion in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1. And he says this, he says, When one of you, meaning when one of you Corinthian Christians, he's writing to them, but he's writing to us. It applies to us. It's so incredibly relevant and paradigm shifting. It's hard to get your mind around this. But he says, when one of you has a grievance against another one of you, and now listen to this language, because it's not mild. He says, does he dare do what? Go to law before the unrighteous. Does he dare take this grievance that he has with his Christian brother and then do what the whole world does, and a lot of us too? Take that grievance, call our lawyer, go down to the public courthouse, file our case, lawyer up, and fight it out. It's what we do. He's like, wait a minute, does he dare do that? As opposed to what? What's the alternative? Because he gives it to us. Instead of, or as opposed to taking that matter and bringing that matter to the saints or bringing that matter to the church, having first worked through a biblical process that I'll get to in a few minutes, 
and saying, we can't get this worked out between the two of us. We're not going to air our dirty laundry before the world. So we need you as the church to take jurisdiction over this matter and rule over it like a court. So here's what's going on in Corinth. As you read through the passage carefully, it seems pretty pretty obvious that one of the Corinthian Christians has swindled, he's defrauded another one of the Corinthian Christians. Okay, so that's problem number one. Our ethic is love. How are we supposed to be known to the world? Jesus says, oh man, they will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Well, whoever it is that defrauded his brother, loved money or property or whatever it was that he stole from this man, took from this man, swindled this man from more than his brother. Problem number one. Problem number two is that the defrauded man behaved just like everybody else in the world. He called up his attorney, he took down his case down to the courthouse, he lawyered up, and they fought it out publicly. That's proving that he cared more about whatever he was defrauded of than the testimony of Jesus in his city. Problem number three is that the city loses because they all watched, walked away going, hmm, these people are no different than us. So what's special about their God? And problem number four, the last problem, the one that actually Paul is most concerned about, is that this church in Corinth just kind of watched on like nothing was wrong. What, is there something wrong with this? Is this, not, is this not the way we're supposed to do things? Why would there be an issue here? And, and didn't do anything about it. And Paul is not, again, mildly miffed. He is absolutely undone. Like he is beside himself. And again, pr- not primarily with the litigants but with the church. So he says again, when one of you Corinthian Christians has a grievance against another one of you Corinthian Christians, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so now just to illustrate how utterly absurd this is to Paul, but only to Paul. (laughs) What he says seems utterly absurd to us. And what is he trying to do? Get us to flip it around. He's trying to renew our minds. He's trying to change our paradigm. He's trying to completely shift our way of thinking and saying, oh, no, wait a minute, I know this looks crazy, but actually what you're doing is crazy. This is what's right. And so he says, or do you not know? What's curious about that statement is he says it six times in this chapter, three times in this passage that we're going to look at today. So what's the problem? It is that these people, and to the degree that this applies to us, don't know something. They don't know who they are through faith in Jesus. They're not thinking about that final day and all the life that will come after. They're not considering the value system of God and then measuring off whatever it is that's in play here, money, property, reputation, whatever, in light of eternity and the witness of the community to people with eternal souls, they're not trusting in the fact that the Spirit of the living God is inside of His people and works in His church and is the most discerning judge in the whole of the universe and is not a bad communicator and indeed is the best communicator in the whole of the universe and has the capacity, therefore, to reveal what right judgment is to His Spirit-filled people, to His church. There's a lot that Paul's got trying to go, hey, there's some things that you need to know. So here's some of them. He says, or do you not know that the saints, meaning that you Christians, will one day, meaning on that final judgment day, and in ways that Paul does not stop to elaborate on, will judge the world. So now you're going to let the world judge you? 
It doesn't make any sense. Do you not know that saints will judge the world on that final day of judgment? And so then Paul says, well, if the world on that last day is to be judged by you, are you incompetent today to try what kind of cases? Because they don't feel this way to us, but they are in fact trivial. Trivial cases when you compare them with eternal things. Trivial cases when you consider how the whole of this world is going to end, including everything we're fighting over. He says, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And do you not know, he continues, and now he just takes it up a level, that on that same last day, Christians are to judge angels. So not only will you judge your fellow human beings, but but angelic beings. And again, he doesn't elaborate on the how or what that's going to look like. He just says, something you need to know. How much more then should you be able to judge the relatively simple is the idea matters pertaining to this life to which he adds. So if you have such cases as this case of one brother defrauding another brother in your church and in your city, my goodness, he says, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church as opposed to just dealing with them yourself and handling it as an internal matter? That's his question. And I think that it's worth noting that not only are the complexities of the issues that we deal with, one against and with each other in this life, trivial in comparison with the complexities of the cases that we ourselves will apparently in some way, shape, or form sit in judgment upon on the last day, but so also are the things that we fight over. They're trivial too when you compare them to eternal things. When you, when you look at them in light of how this world is going to end, and we by faith know how this world is going to end, because God in His Word has come to us and said, listen, everything, everything, everything burned up, unmade, and remade, and the currency that we fight over is going to be of no value then, and the property that we fight is going to be of no value then, and the reputation that we fight over, it will be wholly renewed, made new, In other words, Paul is coming to us and he's trying to get us to think radically different from everyone else in this world. And you can only think this way by faith. Otherwise, it's foolishness, which is a whole theme in this letter. What is really foolish and what is really wise? So he's coming to us and saying, listen, money, for example, has real practical value, does it not? I mean, we need it to eat. We need it to put clothes on our bodies. We need it to live. We need it to put gas in our cars, send our kids to school. It is valuable. Got it. No argument. It's trivial when you compare it to eternal things. How could it not be? It's destined for fire. It's just going to be burned up. You leave it behind when you die. Property? Valuable and trivial, depending on how you look at it. Reputation, valuable and trivial, depending on how you look at it. All of our rights, all that we're owed, all of the things that we cling so tightly to and fight for and fight over just like everyone else, we've got to step back from that and reevaluate those things in light of eternity, light of how the world's going to end in comparison with eternal things. Because when you do that, you can let them go. It may take a minute, or a year, or a decade, most of your life. No, really. We hang on to things differently. And if we don't, that's a problem, guys. This world fights for and fights over the visible things of this world because for them, 
That's all there is. By that logic, if I thought that, I'd do the same thing. This world and the people of it fight to vindicate their names and to get justice in this world and to be declared right and let everyone know it. Why? Because this life for them is all there is. And if it really is all there is, I'm, I'm into I, Sign me up. I'm going to fight with them. Aren't you? But Paul is coming to us and saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This world is not all that there is. This stuff, this, this stuff goes away. There are other things happening. There's a judgment day coming, a day of reward and not reward. And we need to live today in light of that day. We need to evaluate this day in light of that day and everything in this world in light of the world that is yet coming, the world that is being stored up for us. One that we'll enjoy for forever as opposed to, okay, you know, for however many years we have. And I'll tell you, they go fast. They go very, very quickly. So his point is, that knowledge, do you not know, should make us different. It should result in a different kind of life. But that's not what's happening with these people in Corinth. And honestly, you know, I mean, with a lot of us, it's not what's happening with us either. And so Paul says in verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. And then he says, can it be that there is no one among you, what, wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but instead brother goes to law against brother. And that, he says, before unbelievers, for you see the court system was located in the city gates, as was the marketplace. So what happened when these guys went to court? Everybody in town got to hear what went on. Everybody walked home talking about that. Everybody got to see it. And it's an utter failure in every possible way. It's an utter failure, an utter failure for the man who defrauded his friend because, again, he proved he cared more about whatever it was that he stole, wrongfully took, than he loved his brother. For the man who took it to court, all right, yeah. I mean, he betrayed that he did not know who he really was and the spiritual capacities of the church to discern judgment and to rule effectively on it, rightly. And he cared more about whatever was taken from him than the testimony of Christ in the courts, in the marketplace of his own city. Failure for the city that walked away again saying, yeah, these guys aren't any different from us. Failure for the church. This church that didn't do anything about it, and apparently at least didn't see anything wrong with it. And so then Paul says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then he looks at this man who took this dispute and went down to the county courthouse and filed it there and then fought it out with his brother and says to him in a sense, look, even if you didn't have the option of taking it to the church instead of to court, which you do have, even if you did not have that option and you had no option at all but the court system, you should have just dropped it. You should have eaten the loss. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded and let go of your rights and forego what you're owed than do this? It's good that we're seated. Why not rather? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And you're like, yeah, okay, I mean, if it's 500 bucks or something, that might be a little bit easier. But what if it's like 5 million? Then what do I do? I don't know, make it 5 trillion. I think for Paul, that makes no difference at all. But for us, it makes an enormous difference. 
This isn't like a light little conversation. It gets real, real quickly. And yet, what is he calling us to do? Because we look at life right about this distance, don't we? I mean, it's like right here. It's right in front of me. And all I can see is today and me and mine. And I got to get this. And I'm really irritated. And he's like, wait a minute. Hang on a second. This is not the only day that there is for you. And indeed, whatever number of days you have in this life, which are much shorter, no matter how many you get, than you actually think that it's going to be, there's a final day coming and an eternal day coming. And you've got to measure today in light of that. And you have to think about your losses in light of the testimony of Jesus in your city full of eternal souls. He says, my goodness, why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded and let go of your rights and forego what you're owed than do this? But you yourselves, he says, wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He's saying, look, I I don't know how much it was worth or what it was all about, but whatever it is, it's trivial in comparison to the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ, to the eternal salvation found only through faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a city of people who need Jesus Christ and are going to live forever somewhere. He's saying, how can you compare the value of it? My goodness, even to the value of only one soul, it's a big deal. And so for Paul... That's unthinkable, which is almost unthinkable to us because it's such a backwards, different way of looking at it. And yet that's the way he's calling us to look at it. And so he warns them and us severely. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous, who you're living just like when you do stuff like this, is his point, will not inherit the kingdom of God on that final day. But but you will, he's saying. So live differently. Do not be deceived. Now he gives a whole list. Notice the one he puts at the end. The one he puts at the end, I think, is exactly the issue between these two guys. We'll see it. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, and now here it is, nor swindlers. That's the issue will inherit the kingdom of God. He's pointing to that man who has swindled his brother and said, my goodness, you live just like everybody else. Do you not see the problem with that? It's not right. He says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's saying, and you of all people, you, the church, should know better than that. And here's why. Because such were some of you. That's how you lived as the old you. But the old you is dead and now the new you. The new you is supposed to live differently, but you're not. That's the point. He's saying, look, that's how you used to live. Such were some of you, but you ought not to live that way anymore. For you were washed from the filth of that former life, and you were sanctified or set apart by God to obey His Word by the power of His Spirit in a community with one another and for the purpose of revealing Him to your city. You were justified and declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He earned that for you and gave that to you by the Spirit of our God. And as a result, you're a new creation and the new you should live differently than the old you once did. And the old you lived just like everybody else. And why would you not? Because until you came to faith in Jesus, I mean, there is no final day. There's no eternal reward. And all of these invisible things were not real to you. But now that they are, We need to weigh the visible now 
in light of them. And so you say, well, yeah, but what's the process for doing this? Because I, you know, I know how to call my attorney. I know how to file the lawsuit. I know how to lawyer up. I know how to give a deposition. I know how to do all of that stuff. But what's the process for this? I have a dispute with my brother. What's the first thing I should do? Let me tell you the first thing you should not do. Call up a whole bunch of people and tell them about it. Put it on Facebook or Instagram or any other such nonsense. Honestly, that's wicked. It's terrible. It's like taking it down to the public courthouse and publishing it before the world. It's insulting. How dare, Paul would say, anyone ever do that? Happens all the time. And we in our foolishness and immaturity do these things without thinking about them. Think about them for a moment. You want somebody to do that to you? And what does that do for the name of Jesus It's terrible. So what do you do? You go privately to the person. And you deal with them directly. Honestly. Humbly. And if you work it out, you work it out, it's over. If you can't work it out, you then go and get one or two mature Christian people who are not themselves going to talk to anyone about it because they get that. And then they go with you. And again, you try to work it out. And if you work it out, it's over. It's done. It's great. It's finished. And then if that doesn't work, then you come discreetly to your church and you give the matter to the session of your church, to the governing body of your church, which will take up formal legal jurisdiction over the matter, and they then themselves will rule over it very much like a court. And your resolution will come that way. And you say, all right, but what if this person that I'm having a problem with is a Christian and a member of the Christian community, but not a member of this church? Then you go to their church and you say, well, that hardly seems fair. I mean, you know, they're known at their church. Yeah, keep that in mind. It might work to your advantage, actually. I mean, really, like you might show up with this and they might be going, hmm, I've heard this story before. But it might not be that case. So then what do you do? You take it to their church. And you trust that the Spirit of the living God in whose hands are the hearts of kings and of me and of you, of everybody, turns our hearts like a watercourse any way in which He directs. That He can and that He will do that. That the great revealer and discerner of justice and truth will reveal justice and truth to their church in your case. And you say, well, what if they ignore the session of our church or of their church? Then they'll come under the sanction and discipline of the session of their church or of our church. And you say, yeah, but what if they don't care? I mean, what if they just thumb their nose at the whole process? Or what if they they say, all right, you know what, I'll give it a shot. We'll see how it turns out. And then if it doesn't turn out well, I'll just thumb my nose at the whole process then and walk away. What happens then? Let me get to the real question because I think this is the one that we really want the answer to. And the question is, Tom, what if at the end of this process I don't get the justice that I feel like I have a right to and that I'm owed? What do I do then? Well, let me first remind you as a guy that spent 10 years as a trial lawyer, know this, that if you take your case to the courthouse, rare indeed is the person who gets everything they thought they had a right to and were owed. Don't forget that. Almost never. It happens. But even then, you've got to go back to your office and write a you know, check to your lawyer, at which point you're going, hey, I'm, just, I'm a little bit dissatisfied here. Seriously. Everything's negotiated. It's how far can I push you? How little can I get you to accept? And because of the risk of not getting anything or of the cost of having to pay your lawyer, 
almost no one is ever satisfied. So I'm pointing out the fact that it very well may be that you wouldn't get a better result at the courthouse than you might get right here. Something to think about. But also, I think that if at the end of it all, you don't get the justice that you thought you deserved, felt like you had a right to, okay, it's good that you're sitting down and you let it go. You let it go. Trusting that your Lord will reward you in eternity (laughs) and for eternity for doing the right thing and trusting that your day of vindication is coming and that when that day comes, you will not feel like you lost out. Listen to what Peter says. It too is a difficult word, but it's a wonderful word. He says this, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 19, he says, for this is a gracious thing. And you say, well, what's the gracious thing? Here we go. When mindful of God, exactly the person we forget about when we get angry, when somebody does us wrong, when we put up our fists and want to fight, we're to live in a state of mindfulness of God constantly. When mindful of God, meaning for the sake of God, one endures sorrows while suffering, here it is, unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? Oh, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, he says, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. That's very different from us. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. I can't claim that. And yet when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him, that is to God the Father, who judges justly in the end. And the point is, and who will judge justly for you, for me, in the end too. You trust His judgment. So real faith shows up in real ways in our real lives. When it doesn't, it's a problem because we're new people. We're new creations. And we should bear the fruit of that newness. We should look different than we used to. And we should look different on this topic too. So I don't know what that means in terms of the specifics of your life, but the Holy Spirit does, and so I'll just throw it out there to you. How does this message apply to you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that we are indeed redeemed. When we come to a book like this that unmasks us, that reveals our values, that reveals our selfishness, reveals our passions, our needs to be right and declared right and found right and vindicated and to receive and to be given back and all of these things. We recognize just how valuable and how needful our redemption is. 
We thank you for the one who was disadvantaged, though we had disadvantaged him. The one who was pure and made filthy with my, our filth. The one who in love sacrificed for those who chose to worship themselves. Who has claimed us by his spirit. Who has made us his through his gospel. Who has adopted us into his family. Who fills us with his spirit, gives us his word, gifts to us his people and has purchased for us an eternal day of justice and of wealth. Lord, I pray that for His glory and His goodness, You would give us a new paradigm for seeing everything in light of that, and teach us by Your Spirit, day by day, what it means to live in light of that day. Do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.